When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for being a part of the Fearless Army. Drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and when you do, ask me a question in the comments. Each week, we'll compile your best questions and answer them on air. Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Wednesday, happy hump day. Awesome show planned for you today. We're gonna have some fun. Brett Favre, the fun slinger, is going to join us for, he was here last week for the uh, cookout. He'll be with us every Wednesday, uh, taking a look at the NFL weekend from just past and looking forward a little bit. we're going to also do a little Tennessee Harmony at the back end of uh, the hour we'll spend with uh, Brett Favre. Uh, but before we do any of that, I want to take care of one of our great sponsors, Patriot Mobile. Every day we hear about another familiar brand selling out their customers and going woke. Americans are sick and tired of having leftist propaganda jammed into every product they consume. Woke mobile companies are no different. For years, They've been dumping millions into liberal causes, and we had to take it because you need a cell phone and probably thought there was no alternative. I've got some great news for you. There is, and I want you to make the switch today. I've made the switch. I use Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless provider, offering dependable nationwide coverage on all three major networks. So you get the same coverage you've been accustomed to in your area minus the leftist propaganda. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're sending a message that you support free speech, religious freedom, the sanctity of life, the Second Amendment, and our military veterans and first responders. Their 100% US-based customer service team makes switching to Patriot Mobile easy. Keep your phone, keep your number too. Just go to patriotmobile.com Jason or call 878-PATRIOT. Get free activation today with the offer code Jason. Ask about their coverage guarantee while you're there. Get the same dependable service and take a stand for your values. Make the switch today. PatriotMobile.com slash Jason or call 878-PATRIOT. So without further ado, uh, let's roll out to Mississippi. M-I-S-S-I-P-S-S-I. I I can't remember how to spell Mississippi. Let's roll out to Mississippi and bring in the fun slinger, Brett Favre. And man, I was so looking forward to this conversation. Huge Monday night football game. Aaron Rodgers, the, the New York Jets versus the Buffalo Bills and Josh Allen. And we got to start this conversation out on a bummer of a note with Aaron Rodgers getting hurt. 
Brett, uh, welcome to Fearless. Uh, we'll have some fun, I'm sure, but we've got to start out kind of on a sour note. What, what were the, your first thoughts uh, thinking about Aaron Rodgers getting hurt just four plays into his New York Jets career? Did you reach out to him? Were, were you watching? I mean, for me, I lost total interest in the game once Aaron got hurt. Yeah, um, I think my first impression was, you have got to be kidding me. Um, of course, we didn't know how serious it was at the time, but nonetheless, um, we knew he was not coming back in that game. And all the hype and buildup, um, no one, I don't think anyone could have expected anything like this. I mean, Aaron's had some injuries in the past, but um, obviously this one's different. Uh, he's out the whole year. Um, they kind of put all their eggs in one basket, you know, um, can they, their defense is good. I think we saw that they won on, on defense and special teams. Can they continue to do that? I don't think so. Um, so they got to either Zach Wilson or someone has got to manage the game for them and get manufacture some points somehow, some way. Uh, and can that happen? I suppose it can, but who? I, I don't know. You go through an entire offseason anticipating playing with, you know, an all-time great quarterback and making a Super Bowl run, and, and now everything has to be readjusted on the fly emotionally for that team. I'm shocked that they were able to win that game. And then I think about Aaron's emotional adjustment and what he has to go through. Do you think he comes back and tries to play next year at 40 years old or trying to recover from an Achilles tear at 39, 40? Maybe that's just a sign it, it's it's over. Well, I think and this is only uh, my opinion. I believe that he certainly doesn't want to go out that way. That being said, there's a lot that goes into coming back uh, that was unforeseen. He, I'm, I'm sure he wasn't expecting a season-ending injury. Um, with technology today, uh, the surgery, assume, should go well. Uh, and, you know, I think Aaron's got enough competitive spirit in him that he'll come back. And, and just because people either doesn't expect him to or doesn't expect him, if he comes back, to be the caliber of player that he once was. Um, and I think that he's capable of being as good, if not better, um, after this injury. It's going to, tell you, it's going to require some, some diligence. And, uh, you know, I don't know much about rehab with a Achilles, but it's happened before. It's not anything new that the doctors haven't seen. I think physically, when I look at Aaron, I mean, he's taken some hits over the years, but not many, much like Tom Brady. I think that they can play well into their 40s, especially with the rule regulations now. I think he, once he recovers from this, his arm will be great. Uh, 
mentally. He's always prepared. It's just a matter of if he wants to do it. And I, I think he will. Mm, th- that's fascinating that, well, I'm not even, the more I think about it and listening to you, he probably has no choice. When you push that many chips into the middle of the table, yes. you, you got to play it to the bust. And I mean, he, he basically wanted out of Green Bay. He wanted a fresh start in a new organization. And, and I, 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 I think I agree with you. He's got, he's got too many chips in the middle of the table yes. to, to walk away at this point. I think you're absolutely right. And your point is probably the main point of all of this, that the Jets were all in and Aaron was all in. Everything Aaron asked for, he got. And he played four plays, didn't complete a pass. I, I just find it hard to believe that he would leave all that on the table. Uh, and I'm not necessarily talking about money. Uh, he, you know he'll he'll receive he's regardless he'll receive a, a a good chunk, but it's just the fact that he left Green Bay and wanted a fresh start. This team w- reached out, went over and beyond the call of duty to get him, and uh, and I think his competitive spirit won't allow him to to not play. You know, I, I was thinking this morning about your Iron Man streak and and <laughs> how you started and competed in all those games year after year after year after year. And then uh, our researcher did the homework and, and came up with a list of like 18, 20 different injuries you had that were reported in the media that were legitimate. And somehow you still <laughs> went out there and played game after game after game were you just mentally that tough or were you just th- just that foolish and just loved the game that much that it, it just didn't matter? I think all of the above. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there was a, a, a high level of pain tolerance, a high level of determination and grit and toughness. And there was just the all shucks part of it too that just said hell i'm not going to be denied you know and and i think maybe the most important factor in this in my streak was i never forgot how i got my job the guy in front of me sprained his ankle i don't think it was a serious sprain Uh, it was serious enough that he couldn't play the following week but it gave me an opportunity, and I made the most of that opportunity. It wasn't pretty at times, but I made the most of that opportunity. And you're always replaceable. I don't care who you are. If the, if the next guy goes in and does well, shows a little spark, some some, especially for a quarterback, when you when you show that the guys rally around you doesn't have to be pretty but it, you have to show some uh, there's a certain spark that is there and I had that and I not it wasn't anything directly but I had a 
people uh, rose up to the occasion, it seemed like, when I played. And I made it fun and enthusiastic, only because that's the way it was for me. But I, but I always kept in mind when I had an injury, like I tore a knee ligament against the Washington Redskins, missed the rest of the game. You know, typically torn ligaments in your knee, you're out for uh, X number of games. But I remember thinking, boy, I just don't want to give the next guy a chance um, I, because who knows? He could – and they'll say, oh, well, let's just let it rest another week. And let's just let it rest another week as that guy's continue to play and accumulate uh, confidence, uh, which is relayed to management, the coaching staff. Um, and then it's easy for them to say, we'll just go in a different direction. I didn't want to let that happen. So that would probably the, the most important factor in it, all, in it all for me. You know, listening to you talk about that, it, it makes me think about, and I, I don't want to say lack of loyalty because it's not that, but it's just football is such a business. And when you think that, hey, the 49ers moved on from Joe Montana, Bill Belichick moved on from Tom Brady. Uh, the the Indianapolis Manning. Colts moved on from Peyton Manning. It will happen to even the greatest players. And, and so you're not to, – to be at the peak of your career and three straight MVPs and to still have that mentality of like, oh, they will replace me, I'm not, I'm not sure if guys think that way in this era – and, and it's a compliment to you that you remained that humble while achieving that much success. Well, I think that's a lot, due in large part because of my upbringing. My dad would never allow me to be anything but humble. Um, he never. He was my high school football coach and really kind of my mentor uh, throughout. But never once did he say, Brett, that was an excellent job, or I'm really proud of you. Now, some people may th take that in a negative way. You had to know the dynamics between me and my dad. There was nothing I wouldn't do to, to get better. He didn't have to tell me, go run extra sprints, run bleachers, lift weights, throw. He didn't have to tell me to do all that. I did it. He rode my ass like crazy. And I... There was times when I thought, well, damn, how about a attaboy or a pat on the back? I wouldn't say that to him because he'd probably smack me in the face. But, I, you know, people, when I say that my dad never told me he loved me, uh, some people may take that the wrong way. My dad just was, much like me, is uncomfortable in certain situations. And that was one of those situations. We rode home from practice together. We wrote, my mom and dad both taught school. At the, uh, my school was first through 12, so it was all right there. Mom was a special education teacher. My dad was a driver's head teacher and head football coach, and it was all right there. And I had a brother, or sister, and two brothers. We all, during football season, if, if uh, I had practice, uh, we had to stay after. I rode with my dad, and we always taught football. And if it was baseball season, we talked baseball. We never talked, son, I'm real proud of you. Um, 
I, I love you. I want you to know that I'll do anything for you. I'd have flipped out if he'd have said that. Uh, you know, it just wasn't in his DNA. But did I know he was proud of me? Did I know he loved me? Of course. Um, but it was you just had to understand how he showed it. And he was always, without him ever saying this to me, this is my theory, but I think that he was afraid to say anything positive, a pat on the back, a, you know, uh, uh, an, you know, you played excellent last night. Had he said that in his mind, I get the big hit and start, you know, riding the wave rather than, you know, producing with workouts and, and running and throwing and doing those things. Although he was wrong in that theory, if that's the way he thought, I get it. You know, I get it. So I, I just remain that type of player throughout all of my career. Brett, I, I, I want to linger in this for a moment because I, we talk constantly on this show about discipling men, raising men, responsible men, tough men. And, and as a kid, you, and, and no more as an adult, do you wish your dad had been a little different or, or you even as a kid instinctively knew like your dad had a different way of showing affection and love and, and you were good with that? Yeah, no, not at all. I would not want him to be any different than what he was. Um, you know, I, as we all know, as you get older, you see things differently. A lot of things that your parents or, or mentors told you, it went in one ear and out the other. And maybe you was like, yeah, right, whatever. But when you became an adult, you go, you know what? They were right. That happens almost all the time. And, and, and every facet of life across the, the globe. Um, my two brothers were good football players, really good baseball players. Me and my older brother were very similar in size and stature. He got a scholarship to play quarterback at Mississippi State. I was four years behind him. Uh, and and I, I bring them up because uh, they didn't have the drive that I had. Would they have had an opportunity to play pro ball, maybe, but it, it didn't matter to them as much. And so like when dad would push them, it would almost push them over the edge. If, if that makes sense, I was, there was never an edge for me. The more he dug in and was tough on me, the, the harder I worked and dug in and, and not, not in a stubborn way. I was, I didn't want to, let him know that I was doing it because he was pushing me. So a lot of times I did stuff before he would ride my ass. Uh, but I can't tell you how many times in practice, and we ran the ball all the time, but he would say, you're running drills just like the rest of them. Not that I was trying to get out of drills, but he would do that in front of the players, I think just to prove that he was not gonna be showing any favoritism to his son. And I think it, the proof is in the pudding because we ran the ball. If he was trying to get a scholarship for me, you might want to throw it every once in a while. But he wasn't going to change because I was his son. 
Brett, how much of your dad is in you as a father, or do you have a different approach? Um, I've, I think I'm, I have a different approach. I don't have sons, and I, that is very different. Had, I can only assume what type of father I would be if I had a son. My wife tends to think that I would be super hard on him, and I think I would. I would expect the, the very best out of him, but the difference would be that I would pat him on the back. I think I think it's important to to give positive feedback somehow, some way. But it's also good to reprimand. Uh, I can't tell you how many spankings I got growing up, but I deserved every stinking one of them. Even the ones that he did just for kicks and giggles. <laughs> I I spanked both my daughters one time and felt so horrible about it that I, I never did it again. Like now, would I spank my sons? Probably so, because I know they're going to deserve it. And but I would be quick to tell them I love them and put my arm around them when they do well. Uh, so I think that's where I would be different. I'm not saying that I would be a better father or a worse father. I just, that's, I think, how I would treat it. I want to transition back to Aaron Rodgers and, and what I'm calling the end of an era. You know, in 2015, Peyton Manning uh, retires, and, and five years later, I think it's Drew Brees, and then it's Tom Brady or, or Ben Roethlisberger, then Tom Brady. And now Aaron Rodgers' career is in jeopardy. And, and it appears to be the era of the mobile quarterback. And, you know, the quarterbacks that, you know, can move the chains with their feet as well as with their arms. I don't know how I feel about it. You know, I can't tell if I'm just the old guy on my lawn that likes things the way they used to be. Uh, but but I, I don't know if this mobile quarterback era is going to be as fun to watch and as rewarding as the old school quarterback era. Do, do you have a feeling one way or the other? I think you're absolutely right. I think we're, we're trending in a different direction than what we're used to, us, the older generation. Um, I think the younger generation would like to see it trending the way it is. Um, and, and, you know, back in the day, I remember when I was watching football as a kid, there were a few mobile quarterbacks. Roger Staubach was my favorite. I was a huge Cowboys fan. I love the Saints mainly because Archie Manning played there, and I loved the way he played. Fran Tarkenton was another that did some outstanding things with his feet. That was, at least in my era growing up, that was most of the guys were uh, Dan Fouts, Marino, you know, that Never, if they got flushed out of the pocket, it was a throwaway instantly and live for another day. Um, I just think that, in, and back in those days, very rarely was your quarterback high on the talent list. You know, he was probably the lesser of the talented of, of the, the 11 that were playing. But um, 
Nowadays, you're drafting guys that are bigger, faster, stronger, and that includes quarterbacks, uh, guys that can move. So you're having to draft equal talent to, that can rush the passer but also stay up with – I mean, you're seeing it uh, – uh, a tight end looking defensive end. I mean, you take Miles Garrett. What a stud. But he can, he can, and maybe he can't run like a Michael Vick can run, who, but no one can. But he can make plays from one sideline to the next. And so it's funny to me how teams draft based on their division, usually. Like, we, you know, we got to stop this quarterback. He's running all over. So we, they draft a guy who can potentially do what they ask or do what their needs are. I just think it, it is what it is, and whether we like it or not, uh, it, it's just a trend that uh, I see more and more because you look at college quarterbacks. Most of them are probably the most talented or close to the most talented on the team, and that's just the way it is. The speed Fred, of the game – Go ahead, Jason. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you I was going to say the speed of the game is just in general is unbelievable. And as a quarterback, you've got to be able to move some. Uh, you don't have to be great and dodging and weaving, but um, you have to be able to move a little bit. Zach Wilson could run, and he was running for his life the other night and, and – I'll say this. He got away from him. I don't know about what type of plays he made after when he threw the ball. They struggled on offense. But you, you, they need a quarterback that can move and make plays. Uh, Aaron was was the guy, obviously. So it, whether it's Zach Wilson, it's got to be someone who can move until that offensive line can protect. Well, what's going to happen with this mobile quarterback deal the other thing that's going to change is take what went on in Green Bay for the last 30 years. They went from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers, basically 15 years each over the last 30 years. I don't think you're going to see that anymore. I don't think you're going to see one quarterback in one city for 15 years. No, because uh, if you're playing these mobile, they're going to get hurt and it's going to be what you said. You a, a great run, maybe seven years, and then you're going to get replaced by someone who's less banged up and can, you know, will be a better yeah. runner again. If you go to the And so I, I just think the the, the one the franchise quarterback era might be dead. It could be. You know, I heard Aikman say more than once the other night, and I totally agree. Josh Allen does wonderful things with his feet. He's a big guy. It's a blessing and the curse. He's got good mobility. He's big. Therefore, he can run over guys. But like Mike Holmgren told me a long time ago, he said, if you try to run over one more guy, I'm going to fine you $5,000. Now, whether he could do that or not, I slid when now he, now I say this. He said, "Now if the game's on the line or we need a first down, and you slide one yard before the yard marker, I'm gonna find you another five thousand dollars." So you know when and when not to try to run over someone or die for extra yardage. 
And I heard Aikman say that numerous times the other day. Great scramble, great job. Now get down. Live for another day. Because it only takes one hit. And and you he's Josh Allen has survived a bunch of big hits and dished out some, but it's just one hit. That's all it takes. Brett, give me a second. I want to take care of one of our great sponsors, Prize Picks, and then we're going to come right back to you. Do you like testing your fantasy sports skills and getting rewarded for doing so? Then you want to try Prize Picks. It's the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Prize Picks is really simple to play. You can make your picks and submit your entry in less than 60 seconds. Quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of players and stat types are what make prize picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. My mom, she loves playing prize picks. She thinks she knows more about football than I do. She's got three selections for this weekend that she thinks is gonna win her money. Saquon Barkley, more than 75 and a half rushing yards against the Arizona Cardinals. T. Higgins, more than 59 and a half passing yards versus the Baltimore Ravens. And Daniel Jones, more than 198 and a half passing yards versus the Arizona Cardinals. Prize Picks now offers Apple Pay for quick and easy deposits into your account this football season. Go to prizepicks.com fearless and use the promo code fearless for a first deposit match of up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash fearless. Use my promo code fearless. Get up to $100 in matching promo funds. Prize picks. Daily fantasy sports made easy. Brett, great segue in talking about, let's talk about Josh Allen, who, my takeaway on Josh Allen is he's reckless in an era that doesn't require you to be reckless, reckless. or right. even reward you for being reckless. And I say that because I think in your era and before, the, the risk-taking quarterback was actually rewarded. You didn't mind if a guy threw 15 or maybe even 20 interceptions because that's what it took to move the chains to keep the respect of the safeties. It, 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 taking risks used to be rewarded. Now we're in a league where you need to throw less than 10 interceptions and, and, and you need to play with a precision and a, and a security that, that, again, is just the game requires it now. It's a dink and dunk league. It's not throwing, it's not throwing downfield all constantly and testing the safeties. That, that I see Josh Allen as a guy that wishes he had played in the 1980s and 90s and, and just hasn't figured out like, hey, that's not what the game is. And so when I look at the three interceptions, I think he lost a fumble, and he basically had to say, I cost the team the game. Josh has, he's just struggling, and people are comparing him uh, to Brett Favre, and, and, and I, I hope they understand, like, Brett Favre was Brett Favre in an era where it was, you were rewarded for taking chances and taking risks that, that you don't want to be compared to Brett Favre in this era, because I, I think you would even play the game differently in this era 
the way they've rigged up these offenses and, yeah. you know, basically eliminate safeties can't hit anybody coming over the middle. There's just – I think he plays a very foolish game in an era when foolishness just isn't tolerated or rewarded. Well, I think it's a completion league presently. What I mean by that, there's always an easy completion. And I, I, I say that and, and back it up with the fact that I believe the league allows 15 days of padded practice throughout the year. Think about that, how long the season is. It's a half a year, maybe a little bit longer, especially if you make it the postseason. But you only have 15 days of padded practice, and that includes training camp too. The days of the old padded two-a-day practices are long gone. So what happens? Contact is minimal at best, so you don't get to, you don't get to practice on tackling. You don't get to practice on the physicalness of bump and run. So teams are playing off. Their defenses are behind because of that, because they can't do the contact. Rules are in favor of the offense. It's a it's a it's a league where they want the league wants to see the front office wants to see a lot of points. They'd rather see a 48-45 game and have people bitch about no defenses. The days of the Giants and the Bears playing against each other and it being nine to six, I think, are long gone. So you can find a completion. Um, it's usually right there in front of you. And that little completion may get you 20 yards because the tackling is horrendous. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that he doesn't – he certainly doesn't have to be a river riverboat gambler uh, in today's game. He's also perhaps struggling with Stephon Diggs and managing a number one wide receiver. They tend to be a little bit of divas. They want the ball. It seems like he's forcing the ball into Stephon Diggs, and that got him into trouble yeah. uh, Monday night. As, as well, how difficult is it to handle a number one wide receiver? You played with Sterling Sharp, you played with Donald Driver, you played with some good receivers, great, you know, Sterling Sharp, maybe as good as anybody. How, yeah. how, how, how difficult is it to handle their desire to want the ball most plays? It's fairly easy to, to manage. Where you get in trouble is when you start throwing the ball to please him. That's where you get in trouble. If you cross that line, now I'll say this. My first year when I became a starter, um, Sterling was very vocal. And you probably know Sterling. Sterling is very vocal, but he backed it up. So, like, my, I don't know percentage-wise, but I, I can't tell you how many passes I threw to Sterling when he was double or triple covered, and he still caught it. That reinforced to me, throw it again, and he would make it, make it happen again. He was a tremendous player, and he would say, just throw it to me. And he would say it a little more demonstrative, and 
in the back of my mind, even if he was the third read, I would usually scan and go to him pretty quickly just because of the trust factor. But again, in this league today, you don't need to do that. You don't need to force feed a guy because there's completions right in front of you. And the old saying, live for another day, is, is true because you can manufacture a lot of production by throwing it underneath, which will in turn open up down the field. Stefan Diggs, I mean, he's a heck of a player. There's no question. I don't know him, but he's not no different than any other receiver that's had uh, tremendous success. They want the ball, and they're the only ones who want the ball, and that's 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 all they care about. They, I'm sure that they want to win, but they would love to catch 12 balls more so than anything. And it is what it is. I mean, you just got to deal with those guys and not force feed. I'm like you. He threw a couple of deep balls that, that first of all, that wasn't even catchable. So if you throw it to him and it's catchable, maybe he comes away with it and you go dodge the bullet there. But when you throw it and it's not catchable, but it's catchable for the other team, then you got really big problems. So if you're going to take the shot, I'm not saying that it's, it's good to take the shot. There are times and places that you do, but Give him a chance if you're going to take a shot. So what is that conversation like, though, with a Sterling Sharp or any number one wide receiver that's barking the entire game, maybe even barking in practice? How do you have that conversation? How, how do you get to some type of uncomfortable or comfortable understanding with that receiver? You know, I... I never got to that point with Sterling. Sterling is an alpha male. He was a hell of a player. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And I just, I'll be honest with you, it's not the right way, but I, I did more ignoring and, and staying away from him. Like in the huddle, Sterling would say, he would tell the lineman, your asses need to block so we can get the ball to me. And uh, I would hear different versions of that all the time. And Sterling would say, hey, I got this guy. Just throw it to me. And oftentimes I would just follow through and throw it to him. He broke the record, then he broke his own record the following year. Uh, so the body of work was there. Very few times did I throw it to him where it was intercepted. Uh, I can't say that about all the other receivers I've played with, but I'd like to know a, a, if someone would do a fact check to see how many balls I threw to him were that actually intercepted? Uh, if he could get his hands on it or position his body to where he, he felt comfortable, at worst, it fell incomplete, at worst. So I don't know if that's good in, from a quarterback perspective because if you get used to that and then you have to go to another receiver, Sterling was that good. Uh, that he would make me right almost every single time. So I just basically, when he would say that, I wouldn't argue with him. I would just either throw it his way or, or just read the play out and throw it where it was supposed to if, if the other guy was open. I want to move on to the biggest star of the weekend in a weekend where there was a lot of spotty quarterback play, particularly from high-end guys, but one guy 
absolutely lit it up and was <laughs> clearly the best player of the weekend. Tua Tungviola, the Dolphins quarterback, threw for 466 yards, uh, three TDs. They He wins a shootout with Justin Herbert and the uh, – I'm about to call – they're the Los Angeles Chargers now. I was about to say San Diego. I say wins the a shootout thing. with the Chargers. <laughs> wins a shootout with the Chargers. I was blown away, impressed with what Tua pulled off, but I also thought I saw examples of things that, like, I wonder if they're going to get away with this all season because I'm not, they got the fastest pair of receivers perhaps in NFL history. I, yeah. I've never, they got half of a Olympic 4x100 relay team between Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell. And, and I just wonder if, if Tua has the arm strength to keep up with those guys over a 17-game NFL season. Look great. He, he's got the timing down, and he throws in rhythm, and it works. But there are still some times where his arm strength kind of concerns me. W- what's your take on Tua and just his arm and dealing with the pair the fastest pair of receivers I've ever seen. Well, first off, first off, he's got a good friend of mine, but I think one of the better coaches in the league and I think should be a a head coach uh, at some point if that if he chooses to pursue that. And that's Daryl Daryl Bevel, who is uh I think the passing game coordinator. Um Daryl's excellent at, at finding a way I mean, I guess the best way to explain it is I've watched I watched Miami a lot last year because of Daryl. And every game, I was with each game I was I would kind of enter the game before I watched it, thinking, no way is Miami going to get a seven yard bomb. They they did the previous week. They did the previous week before that, and before that, and before that. I'm like, there's no way a team's going to get beat deep. But yet, they find a way to hit the big plays. And um, I think in, in regards to Tua's arm, it's you you wouldn't match the two. You wouldn't say, well, let's pick Tua. He's a big arm. He's a big, big play guy. But what I think he has is great knowledge of the game and his anticipation. And you mentioned this. He's in good rhythm. He knows now. Every quarterback makes a throw that they wish they had back. That whether it be way down the field or short, Tua's gonna have a couple of those where you go, well, he just didn't have the arm for it. But most of the time, he is in such good rhythm, and his footwork and his anticipation, he throws the ball so far in advance before the guy comes out of his break. Uh, his touch. Uh, he, I just think that he's so conditioned to his environment, what, what what is expected of him, and he and he plays within that. Most of the time, he plays within his own strengths and weaknesses, and and it served him well. I can't the combination, and you know, Tyreek Hill had 211 yards, I think, on. 
12 receptions and I've been following Tyreek ever since he was in Kansas City. The Chiefs are my favorite team. Thought he was silly. Like, man, you're going to leave Patrick Mahomes. My God, this could be the greatest combination yeah. in the history of football. But, but Tyreek Hill, to me, is incredibly unique. I don't know who to compare him to. There's because no one when to I think of the to, all, Yeah. The, the, the great receivers are normally about 6'1", 6'2". 6'3", you know, they're oversized, fast tight ends like Terrell Owens. This guy is undersized and a number one receiver. I, I, I just, I don't know if we've seen anything like Tyreek Hill. And this is not a knock, but his, as short as he is, you would never think that he would, maybe a game, maybe a game or two during the year where you, you throw him in there and he surprises you and you hit a couple of deep balls. But week after week after week, he manages to produce monumental numbers. And it baffles me, not so much because of his size, but I guess because they have Waddle, they're able to take the top off on one side with, with one receiver and bring the other in a different direction or whatever and and get these big plays. Now, I'll say this. You hit Tyreek on a crossing route and he's got any space at all, look out. And he's got a gear that most players don't have, and that's including the defensive guys going up against him. So keeping him in check, do you play man? Do you double him with some type of zone coverage? Do you – two-man with safeties over the top. I'm sure all that has been tried. But I go back to Daryl scheming up plays and ways to get either of those guys a big play once or twice a game. I'm going to make an analogy that on the surface will sound silly, but he's the only guy I can compare him to, and they look nothing alike. But he's midget Randy Moss. Wherever he shows up, offensive points show up, safeties are scared to death, and and it opens up. I mean, everywhere Randy Moss went, teams went undefeated, teams led the league in points, and and I'm looking at, you know, the Chiefs were able to win a Super Bowl last year without without Tyree Hill, but, but... their offense is not as explosive without Tyree Hill, and I just can't. The only guy I've seen with this kind of impact was Randy Moss, but he was six foot five, and yeah. this guy is five foot nine, five foot ten, but but he, he he's he can't be defense right now. Well, I mean, the similarities are twelve receptions, two hundred yards. Yeah, you don't have that every game, but. He has numbers like that pretty much every game. You know, maybe it's eight receptions for 150 yards, which may be considered an off day for him. The fact that he does it over and over again is very similar to Randy Moss. You knew he was going to do it, but you couldn't stop him. And both of those guys have that definitely uh, in comparison. Uh, Brad, I want to. I, I mentioned Patrick Mahomes, and and th- there's a similarity I think between yourself and Patrick Mahomes. And and we talked about this last week at the cookout when you were in town with Warren Moss and Seth Joyner, and, and it was about how 
you were so dominant that you really didn't have a rival. There's no quarterback to say, hey, Brett Favre and this guy went back and forth. You won three straight MVPs. Uh, you know, you just didn't have a rival. I think we're headed that same direction, perhaps, as it relates to Patrick Mahomes. He's won two MVPs. He's won two Super Bowls. He's appeared in a third. I'm not sure if any of these other guys are going to rise up uh, to be on his level. Uh, and, and some of that has to do with, you know, these other guys don't won't have Andy Reid. But here are the five candidates, Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, Trevor Lawrence, and Jalen Hurts. I think about those five guys as potentially, and you know, maybe it'll be Tua because he's got these weapons and Daryl Bevel, I don't know, but of those five guys I just rattled off, who, who do you like the most of the guys underneath Patrick Mahomes, Burrow, Allen, Herbert, Lawrence, Hurts, and who, who do you like the most and why? Well, first of all, the problem is all but one of those names, you probably know where I'm going with this, are in the same conference. So only one player from the conference can represent in the Super Bowl. And until they unseat, I mean, Burrow played against him in the championship game. Josh Allen has come close. Tua hasn't gotten there yet, but from a numbers perspective, standpoint he, he's maybe surpassed him if, if he can keep producing like he has but until they unseat him and and go to the super bowl show that they can do it i'm going to say jalen hurts who i think philly right now is the second best maybe the best team in the league this year just based off of one game now, they, they obviously didn't dominate, but they've, they've got the weapons. I think Jalen Hurts is a perfect guy for that team. I think he's a heck of a quarterback. Everywhere he's went, he has won. Um, he's managed to overcome adversity. He's, got, he's mobile, but he's smart. He knows when to run, when to get down. He manages that offense great. And quite frankly, I thought that they should have won the game last year in the Super Bowl. They didn't, but I don't – barring some major injury or collapse on their team, I don't see why they don't compete for it year in and year out. That, that it's an AFC-dominated league right now. Um, so it's either going to be Mahomes, the names that you mentioned, Allen, Burrow, Herbert maybe, Maybe a Tua that's going to represent the Super Bowl from the AFC. My, my money is on – I think on, a lot of people like Trevor Lawrence, but, but go ahead. Your money's on – Yeah, I like him. I think he, he, he finally came into his own last year. I think Doug was, was instrumental in, in, in leading that development. But now he's playing like he did at Clemson, like he's comfortable, they're competitive – they're winning games. Uh, he's he's loving life, but no one's unseated Mahomes yet in the AFC. I'm not saying that players are not playing as good, if not better, but it's about winning and getting to the final game, and no one's done that but Mahomes. 
I, I, I agree with your point that, you know, playing in the AFC makes it tougher. But, again, we had the Peyton Manning, Tom Brady model. And, and, and Brady, I mean, Manning did need to eventually, you know, win a Super Bowl and get out from underneath that. But he was Manning was winning MVPs and was seen as the best quarterback in the league. And then Brady overran him. The, 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 the biggest advantage that beyond his talent, and Patrick Mahomes has a lot of talent, but I, I, I've, you know, being a Chiefs fan and watching Andy Reid's work year after year after year, that, that's the unique advantage that I think uh, Patrick Mahomes has over all these guys. And, and I know there's some young, offensive-minded coaches uh, you know, Serrani with uh, Hertz and, and Doug Peterson's not a young guy, but he's good offensive mind. Justin Herbert's got the, I'm not big on the Stanley. Uh, and Joe Burrow's got the Zach Taylor. But Andy Reid is the Don Coriel of this era. And I, I don't even want to call him the Don. He's the offensive Bill Belichick of this era. Yeah. He, he might be the greatest offensive coach uh, we've ever seen. No quarterback has ever looked bad playing for Andy Reid. He he had he had Donovan McNabb on track for the Hall of Fame. He took Michael Vick out of prison, made him a Pro Bowler. Had Alex Smith undefeated and looking unbelievable, and now he's got Patrick Mahomes looking like he he. Anyway, you you have some experience with Andy Reid. Am I wrong for thinking this is perhaps the greatest offensive mind we've ever seen in the NFL? No, you're absolutely right. Uh, I had the pleasure of playing for Andy for three years, uh, maybe four. I can't even remember. Andy was our tight end coach when I was traded to Green Bay. Mariucci was my quarterback coach who I loved dearly and who was an excellent coach. And then he moved on. And I'll never forget the day, it was off-season, Mike Holmgren called me, and I, and I knew Andy really well. He was a tight end coach, and he met with those guys like crazy. I mean, when we would get out of meetings, they would stay in another 30, 45 minutes. And Mike calls me and says, I, I, I named the new quarterback coach, Andy Reid. And I went, oh, dear God, we're going to meet like crazy. And I thought to myself, what is a former lineman – he played the line for – he was actually a tackle for uh, BYU when his quarterback was Jim McMahon. Um, but I thought to myself, what in the world is a tight end coach slash XO lineman going to teach me about being a quarterback? And it was head over heels, one of the best experiences in my career. Andy was awesome. We didn't meet as much as we did with the tight ends. But Andy, what people have asked me over the years is what makes him special. There's a lot of things, but one of the things that, and to me, maybe the most important element to it was he was simple. And you can imagine how coaches can out can can actually out coach their own selves. Quite frankly, can coach themselves right out of a win by being too complicated. Andy was very simple. He was one of the first to really – I watched film throughout my career, but up until Andy and I were working together, when I watched film, I found myself watching the game. And you go, 
well, what's wrong with that? You're, you're watching the team you're playing, watching their techniques, their, their habits, their tendencies is totally something different than just watching the game. And Andy was instrumental in teaching me. And it's, I'd have to have a, a, a video of a, a game going on where I could show you examples. But he, would, he was good at saying, all right, let's find one guy on the defense that tips off the whole scheme, what they're doing. And you go, is that possible? It is possible. Uh, some teams you don't really have to study because what, what you see is what you get. Cover two, no one's trying to disguise it. They just play their defense. The old Tampa two scheme that you heard about for so long, it was so easy to read, and you knew when they were going to run it. But the teams I'm talking about that disguise and give you different blitzes and try to catch you off guard, those are the teams where one guy usually will tip off what you're doing. Uh, and it may be a rookie who's, who's doing it exactly like the coach coached it, where a wily veteran like a Erlacher is not going to give you the that tip that you need. He's going to give you the opposite. So you look for the guy to give you. The, the, and I, the, the best example I can give is when Tampa started getting good, they had a nose tackle, Brad Culpepper. When he tilted on the center, now they, as they aged, matured, and got smarter, it was a little harder to read. But when they first started out in Monty Kiffin's defense, when he tilted on the center, the side he was tilted to was what we call a strong dog. The, the stack backer and the outside backer were, were blitzing. He would loop around to the Culpepper would loop around the center to the opposite side. The backside end would back off into zone coverage. And the safety would come down and cover for the two backers. So when you watch it, you know, like study it over and over again, you go, yeah, when he's tilted, I'll be damned. They don't do it. They do a strong dog. So it, it simplified how you watch film. So like when I would watch film in the latter part of my career, I would watch maybe a game first, just to kind of, if, if I didn't watch it on TV, just to kind of get a flow of the game. And then I would start slowing it down and watching a weak side blitz. Who tips off that weak side blitz? And it was all because of Andy. So Andy, not only can he scheme plays to get the big hits, or a little rinky-dink motion that, like in the the Super Bowl, that caught the the DB or the nickelback. You know, they put a back way outside, motioning back inside. If the guy comes with him, it's man coverage, and they would pick. You know, they would use motions as indicators. But the way he presents it is very simple. You know, how you call plays and how you scheme them. Can, can go a long ways or it can go a short ways if you don't know how to present it. And Andy is very simple in how he does it. And he's, Andy's one of those coaches that I can see Mahomes saying, why don't we do it this way? I feel more comfortable. Some coaches would be like, 
you do it the way I say it or don't do it at all. Andy's not that way. And you, you earn those stripes to present plays to him or different ways of running it. And he's very uh, open to hearing not only Mahomes but other players' advice. Finally, Brett, did you get a chance to watch the Packers? Do you have any initial thoughts on Jordan Love? I thought he played exceptionally well. Well, I saw bits and pieces of it. Um, I don't. I, I didn't see much of Aaron Rodgers in him. I'm not saying that's good or bad. What I'm saying is Jordan's his own guy. I think that start, and it's way too early to start crowning him the next great Packer quarterback. But all eyes were on Jordan Love. The jury was out on what he could do. Could he fill the shoes that Aaron Rodgers had uh, it cemented himself in, in just history? Can he fill those shoes? I think it's very unfair to, to compare him to, to Aaron even after this game. But I thought he played, considering the, the amount of pressure and the expectation level, especially Packer fans, can he live up to the hype? I thought he lived up to it and then some. I was very impressed with how he played. And the guys seem to, to love him and rally around him. To me, that's as important as anything. Brett, thank you. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Awesome job. Uh, hope you get – you hunting or you fishing? Well, you don't even fish. You're the only guy – No, I'm not a fisherman. It's too hot to hunt fish. right now. I, you know, I, oh. right now I'm trying to find ways to water stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, well, maybe hit the golf course. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll see you next week. All right, Jason. Thank you. Enjoy. Yep. That's Brett Favre, little fun slinger. Uh, You can email me and us at fearlessblazeshow at gmail.com. Tennessee Harmony with Anthony and Virgil. Next. It's my obligation. I hate discrimination. Raising up your hands for freedom. Previously on Fearless. You're a sellout in people's mind. Not obviously I don't agree with this. Because of who you married. That that's being and again. So is it better that I'm divorced from him now? <laughs> like am I now no, not a no, sellout? No. And this is what I just find crazy about it is like her parents have executed a 52-year successful interracial marriage. Why would I be shocked that she's emulating her parents? Why would I be offended by that? Why would I call her a sellout for emulating what she saw in her own home? And who knows, you know. But it wasn't an intentional thing to go find a white guy. It wasn't intentional at all. Like it's, that is so small minded. Welcome back. Time for a little Tennessee Harmony with Anthony and Virgil. Anthony in studio with us. Anthony, get us rolling with a prayer, please. Father God, we are thankful for today and we're thankful for your blessings. Father, help us to uh, always go back to your word to find out what it is we are to do on every day, your will and your way. 
uh, and what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. Bless us and keep us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Gentlemen, uh, I saw something over social media from a speech that Ibram X. Kendi gave uh, that I just had to ask you guys about. He uh, described Jesus as a revolutionary or Christianity as a revolutionary religion. Anyway, you know, I can't do it justice. We'll just play the tape and, and I just, I want you all's reaction and what we should think about it. Uh, let's play the video. Liberation theology. In other words, Jesus was a revolutionary. <laughs> and the job of the Christian is to revolutionize society that the job of the Christian is to liberate society from the powers on, on earth that are oppressing humanity. Everybody understand that? So that's liberation theology in a nutshell. Savior theology is a different type of theology. The job of the Christian is to go out and save these individuals who are behaviorally deficient. In other words, we're to bring them into the church, these individuals who are doing all of these evil, sinful things, and heal them and save them. And then once we've saved them, we've done our jobs. And, and to me, anti-racists fundamentally reject savior theology. That goes right in line with racist ideas and racist theology in which they say, you know what, black people, other racial groups, the reason why they're struggling on earth is because of what they're behaviorally doing wrong. And it is my job as the pastor to sort of save these wayward black people or wayward poor people or, or wayward queer people. That type of theology breeds bigotry. And, and so to me, the type of theology, of liberation theology, breeds a common humanity, a common humanity against the structures of, of power that, that oppress us all. Mm, there's a, he said a mouthful there. Ibram, X, Ibram X. Kendi has written a lot of books. He's very popular on college campuses. He's popular across the globe. He's the intellectual heft to some degree to the whole Black Lives Matter movement and critical race theory movement. And so I just, his initial argument that uh, Christians should be out revolutionizing society, or let's just start there, start there. Is, is that accurate or we'll we'll piece it because as i'm listening to the video it's like i could go on and on but we'll take piece by piece please um so the only thing out of that first couple of seconds that he said that i could say okay i can see where he's going is that christ was revolutionary at his time certainly what he does being the perfect son of god transforming all of life and humanity that's as far as we got but when he describes the, the Christian's job as to liberate society from the powers on earth that are oppressing humanity, he went completely off the rails. Our job, as Christ details it at the end of Matthew chapter 28, he says to go and make disciples of everybody, of all nations, 
teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So our job is not to liberate people from the powers that are oppressing humanity. You, you, you jump, the, the powers that we're fighting against, as Paul would detail it, uh, is not flesh and blood. So we're not dealing with the behavioral deficiency, as he says. We're not dealing with the economic inequality that he may describe. We're not dealing with any of these other structures. Paul says the powers that we're fighting against are in the spiritual realm. Okay, they're principalities and powers and dark forces spiritually. We have a spiritual issue. Does the spiritual issues that we have with sin, uh, with our uh, own struggles with sin, does that manifest sometimes in behavior? Sure. But we're not just about changing behavior. We're about changing hearts. And the only one who does that and the best one that does that is Jesus Christ. So he went completely, you know, completely left field. He's not even in the ballpark when he describes the work of the Christian uh, to liberate from the powers of those oppressing humanity that he's already left the building to me. Virgil, your initial thoughts. He uh, he's right. There are two things that are actually taking place there. One is he's describing liberation theology and We get liberation theology from a man by the name of Gustavo Gutierrez uh, in Latin America. He kind of started this this idea of 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 helping the oppressed uh, in the in that country. Those it was a a shift between the owners uh, of power, the owners of of resources and the laborers. And so his thought process was we'll liberate them. And he used his Catholic uh, ideas, Catholic upbringing, uh, his, his Catholic foundations, uh, alongside some Marxian ideology and an effort to really overturn what was taking place. It would be James Cone in the 1960s who would hear this. He would be known as the father of black liberation theology. Uh, and, and he would use those ideas to see all of scripture through the lens of this oppressed and oppressor idea. Um, and, and that's what you're listening to Ibram X. Kendi talk about his lens, his biblical hermeneutic. It's far from biblical. His, his lens that he's viewing all of, of, of what Christians should do. He's viewing that through the lens of men like uh, James Cone. He is not viewing that through the lens of Matthew, Mark, Luke. And John, our appeal uh, is to scripture. His appeal is to an idea, an ideology that was formed in the mind of a man by the name of James Cone in the 1960s. In, in, in the vacuum of the civil rights movement, you would see James Cone begin to espouse the ideas that Ibram X. Kendi is, is positing. And now he's pushed that forward. And it is what fuels the social justice movement. So these are not Christian ideas. Uh, This is an idea hatched in the mind of a man at at around about 1960, uh, mixed with a lot of uh, Marxian ideology. Uh, It's it's an effort to dichotomize Christianity. It's the thought that, and and I'll stop here, it's the thought that Christianity is insufficient. Uh, In other words, we we enjoyed the white man's religion and it, it didn't do us well as black folks. And so what we need to do is something more. Uh, what we need to do is something more than what the Bible recommends. We've got to do this, this other thing called liberation theology. And so that's what Kendi is appealing to. He's not appealing uh, to scripture. He also has a deficient view of, uh, of, of, of the gospel. 
Uh, he has a deficient view of the gospel in this way. His thought is, well, they get saved. The person who needs Christ gets saved, and that's all we do with them. Uh, Anthony just just quoted uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where, where it talks about all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Therefore, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. We have a job as Christians to do more than simply get them saved and call it good. Uh, we have a job to go and proclaim the gospel. And what we're looking for is transformation, but it's transformation from the inside out and not transformation from the outside in. And that's the biggest difference. So, Virgil, you walked me down a path that I've been wanting to go. And so we might as well do it now. And I'll start with with you, Anthony, is is there. Ibram X. Kendi, and it seems popular now among young people and other people that think like Ibram X. Kendi, they call Christianity the white man's religion. And I, I don't, that's not a sound argument in my opinion. Can, can you, you two guys, Anthony, you go first, walk us through why that's bogus. It's bogus, one, because of where Christianity began, uh, but if you want to look at location, but it's bogus mostly because it's not a racial identity um, faith. It is a spiritual faith. It does not have a race identifier. Um, have there been people who have tried to take God's word and manifest it into whatever they desire? Sure. Um, God's word speaks expressly on so many different things. If, if I can talk to people who don't really know it, I can twist it. That's how you get all kind of deception now. But that's a ploy of the devil to undermine God's work in saving humanity. So it's been there have been people that have used God's word for several different things. But again, going back to what God is trying to do, when, when we look at what we all deal with as humanity, one of the questions that we struggle with, everybody does, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do I, why am I going through this situation? What do I do with this frustration? And what the enemy has done, especially with black people in America, has taken that theme and has given you a lens to say, hey, here is where you can point your anger and frustration. So it goes towards racism. It goes towards discrimination. It goes towards uh, the slave trade. And that becomes the focal point. And now I can't even read the Bible without seeing that when actually this is much grander than this one point in history. It's much grander than the color of my skin. As I said, this is not racial. It's spiritual. It's, it's not it's not economic. It's spiritual. So again, with black people, young black people, they have this frustration that is misguided. It's not, you know, how do I deal with this? Let me go to God's word. It is, how do I deal with this frustration? Here's the finger that I can point to it. And how do I put God's word to back up my frustration at these people? And, and that's, again, that's, that's just completely off the rails. Virgil? You can, you can begin. I mean, what normally happens when this question arises, Jason, is folks begin to go back through scripture and try to make Jesus a black man, right? So, so in an effort to avoid this, this white religion, quote unquote, 
Uh, we go back through scripture and try to make Jesus, Jesus was a black man and here's who he was. And, and, and I think Anthony said it well. This really, the, the, the faith that we hold dear to has, does, has no uh, connection or no connectivity uh, to the level of melanin in someone's skin. Jesus was, was, a, was a Jew. He was in, in, you know, in the Middle East. Uh, he probably, probably looked more, more like me uh, than some white haired, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed, uh, you know, Jesus uh, that that uh, that fits in a in a, in a brill commercial uh, or shampoo or shampoo commercial. Uh, that's not the Jesus that we worship. If you if you begin, if you want to, you can go down the line and say, well, Jesus was a black man. You can go down the line of even even appealing to scripture and saying, well, the first the first convert that we read about in the book of Acts is the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, here he is from Africa. He goes back and, and, and evangelizes there. You could walk down that trail that to, to, to show, hey, this black person and this black person throughout, throughout history and, uh, and you know, theologically speaking, were, uh, were connected to, to Christianity, but more important than that, more important than, than appealing to racial identity on the other side, I think it's, I think the, the argument really needs to lie in what is truth? And, and at the end of the day is what's being stated by Christ, the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except by me. That has no level of melanin to it. Either it's true or it's false. And we have to deal with that reality. And so uh, folks who are concerned as to whether Christianity is a white man's religion or a black man's religion or or what have you are, are seeing this in a very small way and are really not not looking at the word of God through the lens that it, it should be looked at uh, as first a mirror to one's own soul and a window throughout that, that we look out and understand the rest of culture. It, it, it Virgil just hit it. It says something about you and how you understand, you know, God's word and what you're looking at God's word through. If Jesus were white, if he actually was a white person for some people, that's going to completely throw off their theology. If he was indeed a black person. For some people, that's going to shape their theology. And what Virgil just points out is, are we taking a moment to examine the truth in what he's saying? Because it transcends the racial lens. It's going to make you feel any particular way. And so for some, as he's pointing out, for some, if we go back and say, OK, well, Jesus is in this area and, and that means his skin color would have been this. For some people, that does something for them emotionally. That's oh, he was. Yeah, he was. He, he looked more like me. OK, he may have looked like you, but his life was transcendent above yours. He was perfect. So that doesn't mean that you're perfect because y'all look the same. This is not fourth grade. But if you go back to say, well, if he was white, you know, oh, they got that white person. They got that white Jesus on the wall. and They got this. It, that says something about what you feel about God's word, because I can't even take it in because of what I'm seeing racially. That says so much about what we're bringing to the table rather than what we're gathering from God's word. So Virgil, you first here. When I hear the oppressor, oppressed dynamic coming from Ibram, and it's very popular, you know, it, it, it's and it's popular in the church as well. This his whole mentality. So, Virgil, you first. Correct me if I, I, I look my understanding or my relationship uh, with faith and with Jesus. I tend to look at myself as if I have any problem, I'm oppressing Jason by not being obedient to what's spelled out in the Bible and his word. 
I'm really, and again, that's where my relationship is. It always starts with me. What did I do wrong? What am I doing wrong? What can I correct? And and I'm listening to both of y'all, and 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 the what Ibram X. Kendi is 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 saying is he's expressing a theology that allows you to point the finger every place else, but at yourself. And and again, what my faith is is me trying to examine myself, trying to inspire myself to live a more Christ-like life so that I can experience all the benefits, joys, blessings that he has for me on this earth while hopefully being a part of that small remnant <laughs> that gets to spend eternity with him. Am, am I looking at things through the proper lens? No, that's that, that's absolutely correct, Jason. I mean, the the problem again with with ideas like you know that came from guys like Gustavo Gutierrez, that came from James Cone, that are now being espoused by men like like I Ibram X. Kendi. It's it's that everyone out there is the problem. Uh, everything out there is oppressing me. Uh, every, it, 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 they're absolutely devoid of being able to be self-reflective and examine the choices that they've made, the decisions that they've made, uh, or, or any or any facet of life that that they can hold themselves accountable for. And, and really, Scripture doesn't allow that. You know, Romans three twenty three tells you that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result of that, uh, there's something that we now must do. Uh, we must recognize uh, that we're sinners and, and, and humbly submit ourselves uh, to the word of God, to, to what Christ has done in living a perfect life and dying a death that, that he didn't deserve, but that we deserve for our sins against the holy God. Those are the kinds of things that our faith should cause us to examine and to walk out. What you're seeing is a is a different religion. It is a different gospel. It is one that says if, that 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 sin really the, the the origin of sin is really connected to one's skin color. Uh, so if you're white, you're sinful, uh, and and you're the oppressed. Uh, you're the oppressor. You're the oppressor. And you need to uh, you need to repent of your whiteness, and those are the, that's the kind of language that you'll hear from men like him who espouse these ideas. It's about repenting of whiteness. It's about advocating whiteness. It's about amplifying blackness uh, and, and black theology. All of that is 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 reflective of of looking outwardly rather than looking inwardly, and that's where things need to begin. Anthony, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation because I, I think. This guy is so popular on college campuses and with young people. And, and, and you know, it's kind of the hip thing to do to read his books, mm -hmm. adopt, you know, well, I'm not comfortable with everything, but, you know, Bob. And so I'm just wondering, as a minister, mm -hmm. I would imagine, and, and you're yeah. young, particularly in comparison to me, you're dealing with this a lot with your young congregation. So how do you, uh, unhook them from this. I, get, I try to get them to look at this biblically and not societally, not this experience that they see out here. For example, uh, if you were to, on a college campus, talk about the term slave, oh, you're going to rile them up. You're going to get this anger uh, as a part of this whole slavery thing. And they're going to talk about, you know, what America did, all this kind of deal. But when we look at that word biblically, 
Do you do you find slave as in, uh, you know, Egypt enslaving Israel? Sure. But you also find slave as Paul describes it in Romans chapter seven. We were slaves to sin. Now, we don't like to look at it that way. And that's part of what you were describing. Like, we don't look at the fact that, man, I have been oppressed by my own relationship to lust, my own relationship to sin. That has been the oppressing piece in my life because that's spiritual. But you also see that word slave as Paul describes himself. I'm a bond servant. I'm a slave of Christ. Wow. Now, when we go to that dynamic, the discussion is going to change because now it reflects on my faith. It reflects on how I respond. Am I being obedient to Christ, one who has given me everything that I need for life and godliness? Am I uh, being a willing servant for the kingdom or am I running around pointing my finger to everybody else? The other thing I'll point out, too, is. Uh, that whole description that you gave about oppressed versus oppressor, that is a dynamic that will divide and separate us every time. And the enemy, yes. Satan, he is good at creating the us versus them dynamic. So uh, unless we're talking about those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ outside of that discussion, and even if we have that discussion, say, so, OK, we're in Christ, we're out of Christ, the job of those who are in Christ is to try to gather those into Christ who are not there. Mm -hmm. But if we take that dynamic and say us versus them, all you have to do then is point out a difference. We're gonna point out a difference in melanin, we got an us versus them. We're gonna point out a difference in economics, we got an us versus them. We're gonna point out a difference in whatever case, it's us versus them. And while you're fighting that war, nobody's coming to Christ. Nobody's going to be better. And so, his argument in totality is the way he compared it is like, hey, this liberation theology brings us together while, you know, this savior deal, it, it kind of forces you to improve your behavior and minimize. That's that was that was the part that, that bothered me. He minimizes what we're dealing with, as he put it out, a behavioral deficiency. I'm not trying to go out to see people who have a behavioral deficiency. I'm looking to those who have a savioral deficiency. We all need a savior. Virgil just quoted, all have sinned, all have wandered away, all have gone wrong. I need a savior. How can he talk about Jesus and not talk about him being our savior? We all should have a savior theology because without him, I'm not saved. So so but but when you look at it as uh, oh, the reason why we're going out is we just want to improve your behavior. I'm not interested in improving behavior. If we transform hearts, which is what God's word does, the behavior will follow. But you can have a good behavioral piece, but then have a evil heart and that will transcend all of that, quote unquote, good that you think you're doing. Virgil, I'm going to ask you to speculate. Uh, and if you don't, I will. Uh, <laughs> do you think he actually believes what he's saying here? I don't. I, I, I think he's evil, knows he's promoting something that's evil and, and, and is literally intentionally because it rewards him financially and makes him popular. He's leading people away from God 
And th that's, again, why I call it satanic, because one, I believe he believes in God. And, and a lot of these devil worshipers, all of them believe in God. That's why they're devil worshipers. You don't believe in the devil if you don't believe in God. I think he's intentional here and knows exactly what he's doing. He's leading people away from their own salvation. I think it's intentional. I, I, I'd say it this way, Jason. It, you know, Ibram X. Kendi is, is an evil man uh, and he's preaching a false gospel. Uh, and scripture reserves its most grand condemnations for those who twist scripture, uh, who proclaim to be teachers and are not. Uh, there are warnings in the scripture for the kinds of th things that Ibram X. Kendi is doing. And apart from repentance, uh, what he will experience in judgment will be absolutely severe. So my prayer is that he would turn from this wickedness that he's engaged in, uh, would repent uh, and really find himself connected to the true Christ who does save, who transforms hearts and lives. And as a result, uh, culture is transformed uh, as well. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, we're going to play some harmony and uh, we'll see you guys tomorrow. up so divided stop fighting in Zantong we used to be a nation one united now we're headed for a downfall God let your light shine down what we need more than anything Get to me